It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Trey, this week I'm taking a look back at a conversation I had with someone I like and respect a lot, Shannon Bream. She's smart and she's funny and she's kind and professional and a person of faith who lives out that faith in both her public and private interactions. She's the host of Living the Bream podcast and uh, very recently also the host of Fox News Sunday. I hope you enjoy this encore episode as much as I did and that you all have a great week. Uh, Hey, this is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesdays with Trey. Uh, This is a treat for me, our guest today. Well, first of all, let me get the bad news out of the way first. Uh, She's a lawyer. But that is about the only bad news anyone could ever conjure up about Shannon Bream. You know her as a host on Fox News. She's a legal expert. She's a Supreme Court expert. She's a successful author. But you also know me. I like to start with the things that we may not know. So with that, welcome. Thank you, Shannon, uh, for doing this. It is a pleasure to be with you. All right. Tell us what it was like growing up as Shannon Bream, although your name was not Shannon Bream growing up. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Florida. Um, We have very deep family roots there going back many generations. I miss it all winter long. So as we speak and I'm looking out the window at the snow, wish I was back there. Um, But listen, like a lot of kids, I grew up, my parents divorced when I was very young. So there was a lot of shuttling back and forth between them. But my parents were really good, good people who made the decision they would never talk ill of each other in front of me. So they remarried at wonderful step parents that the four of them would get together. And my dad and stepdad called each other husband-in-laws. So it was about as amicable as it could be. I mean, they they made sure that my childhood was as smooth as it could be. Um, I, I grew up in a, a home of deep faith and um, went to Christian school, K through 12, where my mom was a teacher. And, you know, they make no money and do it for the love of it. It's a ministry. And then I went off to Liberty University and then off to law school um, back in Tallahassee, where I grew up at Florida State. All right. The, the household you described is happier than than some of the ones I know where the parents <laughs> actually do stay together. Right. So right. Very odd. That uh, that sounds happy. You, all right. You went to Liberty. I, two of the best people I have ever known in my life, uh, one of whom is on this call, Mary Langston and Sharia Clark, whom you were That's kind right. enough to sign a book for. The ladies. Yes. She's wonderful. So they both have assured me that I would not have survived for an hour at Liberty because there (laughs) are apparently rules. What was it like there? You're going to love this because I grew up in such a super strict household, which I've talked about this. My mom literally fell in love with this plaque she saw at a garage sale, which was kind of our speed of what we would do on weekends. Garage sale. She found this plaque that said meanest mom in the world. 
And she plunked down her like $1.25 and was so excited. She hung it up in her kitchen. It was recently discovered a couple of years ago. She rediscovered it, but she was proud of that. My parents were super, super strict. I was the uncoolest kid around. Um, books were my favorite thing in the planet, still kind of are. Um, but like the, you know, no dating. I, I skipped a grade in school. So I was a 16 year old senior. Like I was truly the biggest nerd that there was. So um, I had a very tight lockdown on my life. So when I went to Liberty, <laughs> I actually thought I had some freedom because oh my isn't that seriously ridiculous? I mean, because oh we would have curfew, I think it was like at 1130 or 12, but I'd be like, until that moment, I have to check in and it's lights out and the whole thing. Like I can just go crazy. I can do whatever I want till 1130 or 12. So to me, Liberty was like a party. And my husband, who I met there, but not until we were both about to graduate, he almost didn't survive like you. That first year was so hard for him. He's like, I cannot do this. This level of um, you know structure and discipline, like I don't know if I'm going to make it. So two very different experiences. Yeah, I'm with Sheldon on that. T- Tim Scott and I went to Liberty twice to speak. And first of all, he was so nervous the entire time we were there that I Aww. would somehow or another get kicked off campus and embarrass him <laughs> even as a non-student. But I just, I mean, Baylor, we had a curfew. You had to be in by 11. Mm-hmm. But as I understood the rules, that did not preclude me from going back out. I just had to be in at 11. <laughs> okay. So, See, that's the lawyer was... in you. Before you were even <laughs> equipped to professionally argue, you were already ready. Oh, my heavens. All right. What did you major in and why? I had three different majors. You know how everybody kind of gets there and changes their mind. I started out as uh, accounting. And my parents are like, honey, we really don't see you as being an accountant for the rest of your life, kind of sitting here with your calculator and doing this stuff. Um, And they were right. I did a semester or two of that. And I literally spent one break on my semester trying to track down three cents. Um, And I kept going through all of my balance sheets and my discounting to values and all that kind of stuff. And I finally was like, you're right. I'm not going to want to spend my whole life looking for three cents. So then I was a political science major too. Again, my parents said, honey, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to be a teacher? What's going to happen with that. I just loved politics. So they finally convinced me to do a business major, which I absolutely loved. And there was so much in the major that I took. It was um, a management specialty. So there was a lot of human psychology and what motivates people. So I really loved that major business. It was. So I think you've already answered my next question, which is if you could go back now, knowing what you know now, would you major in the same thing or pick another discipline? Hmm. You know what? I grew up um, studying music pretty seriously. And my parents, my mom really wanted me to continue that in college, but I thought I'm not going to make a living as a professional musician. But I regret now that I didn't at least do maybe a minor in music because it really is something I still love. And I could have developed, I had a long ways to go. I could have really improved in that, maybe piano performance. So I think I would have added at least in some music classes, if, if not a different major altogether. I think I read that you are a classical pianist. Is that, I mean, I mean, I think you're like really, really, really good. Aren't you? No, no, this is, we're going to be overselling it. If I don't tell the truth here, I dreamed at 15, 16, like, Oh yeah, I'm going to be a classical pianist, like a performing professional. Someone's going to pay me to listen to me play. Um, I was good, but I was never that good. Um, I write a little bit and I do play a saying, but in church, like, you know, kind of everybody sings in church. Um, I, I just, I love 
music. It is one of those um, passions in my gut. I don't know how I would have made a living at it, but I do love it. And I, you know, I did over the years perform um, and it was something that required, you know, five to six hours of practice a day, which I clearly don't have now. So now I just play for fun. You know what I'm sitting here thinking? You never did anything wrong, went to Liberty, did Mm -mm. everything your parents told you to do. Also picked up a musical instrument along the way. I, (laughs) I'm just wondering how much my parents would have given to have had you as their child (laughs) instead of me as their child. But think about how boring I was. You were probably much more filled with antics and mischief. You were much more like my husband, who is sort of the class clown of his family, like always, you know, on the edge, sometimes stepping over it. Um, and, and his family, you know, he was the last of six. So he says like his parents were just done. They were exhausted by the time he came along. So his, um, you know, oldest siblings, um, they, it was, you know, very tight ship by the time he came along and he was a surprise, um, much later in their lives, he said, basically the rules at my house were like, when we get up in the morning, you need to be alive and in your bedroom. That's it. <laughs> so you guys probably had a much husband. more fun childhood and teenage years than I did. I have met your husband on many occasions. And I think uh, my, parents, my parents <laughs> would love to have had him instead mm-hmm. of what they had. All right. You finished Liberty. You go to Florida State for law school. What mm. possessed you to go to law school and not straight into the business world? I'm going to be 100% honest. And I tell this to young people because I'm sure you get them asking you all the time too, should I go to law school? What should I do? Um, This was the early 90s uh, when I graduated from college and there was a bit of a recession going on. And my friends were having a really hard time finding jobs. I love school. So I was like, well, I'll just go to grad school. And my dad had always told me only half jokingly, like you're going to medical school or law school. So you need to pick one. And it wasn't really a negotiation. I knew I couldn't cut it in medical school and I have the weakest stomach around. So um, law school, it was, and I knew that it would have a lot of the things I was interested in politics, how laws come together, um, the administrative state, all these things that to me were interesting. So I went off to law school mainly because I couldn't find a great job on graduation. And I thought, eh, grad school, three more years all by myself. All right. You graduated from college with a Latin phrase that I can't pronounce. And, and, <laughs> and none of my friends, uh, I mean, I never had any reason to learn how to pronounce that. And you finish law school with honors also. I think you were in private practice for a little while and something led you to make like a pretty big career shift. Mm-hmm. Listen, I've always been a news junkie, total news junkie since I was a kid. I always wanted to watch the, the you know, Walter Cronkite with my grandparents, like sit down and watch the news like they did. I just thought it was so super interesting. I wanted to know about everything and the world is very curious. Um, I know you find this hard to believe, you know, being the bookwormish weird kid who wanted to know everything. Um, but I just had this real current events and news hunger. And I kind of flirted with that a little bit in college, like doing communications or something. And my dad was like, oh, oh, no, no, that's not a real job. You know, journalism and the TV stuff, that's not real. Um, So that was shot down really quickly. And I know he was always just trying to protect me because he thought I was a good student. I should go as far as I could with my education. Um, And in his mind, communications was not going to get it. So 
I'd always kind of flirted with it. But as I got out and started practicing law, even when I was in law school, I thought this is not what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. It's great foundation. I don't know where I'm going to go, but this isn't like a 40 year thing for me. I I just can't see it. Um, And I always maintained that interest in news and current events, that kind of thing. And I was actually more and more miserable. My firm was a great firm. I had great partners, great people, but I just did not enjoy the daily grind of the practice of law. I didn't like it. And um, I had a friend, made a friend over at a local TV station in Tampa where I was practicing in Florida and got to know a couple people over there, reporters and anchors. And, and I said, hey, can I, you know, like take you to lunch, pick your brain, figure out what this business is all about. So it was about three, four years into um, my legal career when I said to this one anchor, should I go back to school if I want to do this? Like, is it ridiculous to think now I'm almost 30? you know what I should do here. And she said, there is no way you should go back to school. Just try to get an internship at a station. So I went to her station and they said, you can't do it unless you're doing it for college credit and you can't get college credit unless you're a college student. So I started bugging all the schools that I could in the area. And finally, University of South Florida in Tampa, I got to the head of the um, MassCom program there and he agreed with many stipulations that he would allow me to take some independent study. So I'd actually learn something about news writing and research uh, and they would sign off on the credits for me to work at my local station as an intern. So that's what I did. Who would have thought that it was that tough to go back to college after you already had it? I know. It was weird. I mean, I I even, this is back, this is dating myself when faxes were still a thing. Like I would fax all my transcripts to these schools and be like, look, I'm serious. Here's my, you know, graduating law school with honors. Here's my undergrad. I'm a serious student. I'm not, you know, a total weirdo, even though I'm almost 30 and I want to go back to school and change my career. Um, And this, you know, guy at USF was finally kind enough to say, all right, I see what you're trying to do and I'll help you. Shannon, you are not dating yourself. Uh, Dating yourself is like when I tell my kids we use smoke signals and the telegraph to communicate when I was a kid. Faxes, I think, are still I think I still still see one once in a while. We were watching a, a, a spy thriller movie from around 2000 last night with Ben Affleck in it and and uh, this urgent message starts coming over the fax machine and we just burst out laughing like <laughs> yeah i guess that was a thing at one point uh, it was all right so if i read this correctly you spent some time in charlotte north carolina i did and that's about an hour north of where my wife and i live and about an hour and a half north of greenville did you mm-hmm. ever come to the upstate of south carolina is there anything we could have done to entice you to come here <laughs> Listen, um, don't I got to whisper this part and my husband cannot listen to your podcast, but I did have a serious boyfriend in Greenville for about three years uh, before I met my husband, clearly. (laughs) And so I was in Greenville quite a bit and I loved it. I mean, you know, what's so funny. This is what I think about. Like he had a great family. He was a great guy. Just wasn't meant to be between us. Uh, But I remember I stopped to get gas there one time in Greenville and someone stopped me at the pump and we're like, Hey, do I know you? And I'm thinking, no, I'm just, you know, some college kid or whatever. And she said, were you a hee-haw honey? Which was like the greatest compliment she possibly could have paid me. <laughs> I thought I'm a little young for that. But if you watched Hee Haw, you know what I'm talking about. And I was like, wow, she oh. thinks I'm cute enough to be a Hee Haw honey. That happened in Greenville. Oh, my heavens. Well, no, I, my my parents only allowed us to watch 30 minutes of television a week. Wow. Um, which is why. I watched half of Hee Haw because that was what my father made oh. us watch. I know 
all about that. And Mm -hmm. actually, the good news, Shannon, my therapist just cleared me to begin talking about this publicly again. I'm ready. The fact that I had to watch (laughs) y'all most Saturday nights with my parents and grandparents. No, I know exactly. Well, I'm glad. um, I'm glad someone in Greenville was nice to you. That's probably not how I would have started the conversation. But uh, (laughs) I was not offended. All right. Eventually, um, South Carolina loses you. And you wind up at Fox. How did you mm-hmm. get from calling schools in Florida looking for an internship mm-hmm. to Fox News? Well, I have to tell you, before I left Tampa, I did get fired there um, because the guy who hired me after my internship said, I mean, I got hired as a producer and a writer. So I would work the teleprompter. I would produce the little cut ins to Good Morning America. I would write scripts for the anchors. I did everything and I was so excited. And then one day he said, listen, if everyone has broken legs and we get a story, you're going to have to go out on it. And I was like, sweet. I love it. So I just started doing that. Well, then my boss and his boss um, got shown the door. Don't know details, but we came in one day and they were gone. So the new guy comes in and um, I was like, this is great. You know, fresh eyes. He's going to give me a chance, whatever. He called me in two weeks after he got there on a Friday afternoon and the head of HR was sitting there and I thought, I'm getting promoted. But the guy, listen, with the head of HR sitting there, you're not getting promoted. Um, and he said, you're the worst person I've ever seen on TV. You will never make it in this business. And I do not know why they thought it was a good idea to put you on TV. I hope you're a better lawyer than you are a reporter. The end. And I was humiliated because I'd left my firm and blown up, blown up my whole legal career to come to this. And this guy just told me I was a disaster. So listen, I had not taken classes in college. I probably was a disaster. Um, And I could not get anyone to return a phone call, um, an email, anything for six months until I finally got that job in Charlotte. They took a chance on me there. WBTV, amazing people. I had a co-anchor there, John Carter, who taught me almost everything I know about the business and was very patient with me. Still a great friend. He's still an anchor there. And from there, I got a call to go to NBC in Washington, work for the local NBC for three years. And Fox was blowing up, taking off at that time. And I would send my stuff over and they just, you know, they get so much stuff. They just weren't interested. I couldn't get an interview. So finally, um, one morning, uh, Britt Hume was speaking somewhere and my husband had booked him. He handles professional speakers. He'd booked him at this event and he said, you got to get up and come with me to this breakfast event. Britt's speaking and maybe you can make your pitch to him directly. I didn't want to do it. I'd anchored the 11 o'clock news the night before, which had gotten pushed back like two hours by a NASCAR um, race. So I didn't go to bed till like two or three in the morning. He wakes me up at 630. Got to get up. We're going to this thing. Go to this thing with Britt. We're in the green room. Things are running behind a little bit. So he's sort of a bit of a captive audience. And I thought, okay, you got to get up your your courage here and, and put it all on the line. And so we're talking very, you know, Britt is the kindest person in the world. We're talking. And um, my husband says at one point, hey, Britt, I don't know if you would know this, but my wife is a local anchor and reporter here in DC. I don't know if you've ever seen her work. You know, she'd love some feedback. And Britt's like, oh, well, good for you. What do you want to do? And that was my moment to say to him, I want to come work for you at Fox News. And I just got all my gumption together to say that. And he said, that's nice. I get that a lot. You know, just kind of like, okay, I'm embarrassed now. It was very polite, but it was clear that he was not interested in, in hiring me right away. So um, we chatted for a little bit. He gave me his address and said, hey, send over your DVD before you know you could just send a link. He said, send your DVD and I'll give you some feedback. And I said, thank you very much, Mr. Hume. I appreciate that. And I went to take a, a little walk around the venue because it was a little bit embarrassed. And while I was gone, he says to my husband, Sheldon, um, you know, does your wife like to cover politics? What's she into? 
my husband said, yeah, when she was at law school uh, in law school at Florida State, um, she worked in the Florida House of Representatives, sort of on a scholarship program to pay for her school. And Bruce said, wait a minute, she went to law school. Did she finish? And Sheldon said, well, yeah, she graduated with honors. Amber says, I didn't know she was a lawyer. Did she practice? Yeah. And Britt said, do you think she would want to come cover the Supreme Court for Fox News? And Sheldon's like, well, I, I don't want to speak for her, but I think she'd be very interested in that. So I come back in literally 10 minutes after I've been kind of embarrassingly, you know, politely brushed off by Britt. And I walk in the door and he literally says to me, when could you start working for Fox? And I'm looking at Sheldon like, what the heck happened while I was gone for 10 minutes? <laughs> but Britt had said, you know, Megyn Kelly had just moved to New York to do a show with Bill Hemmer, the morning show. And he said, I'm looking for someone to cover the Supreme Court, but I'm only interviewing lawyers. That's all I'm interested in. And I wish you'd said that up front. So from there began a conversation that took several months. And thank God I ended up at Fox. Wow. <laughs> wow. Crazy. Thank you, Sheldon. For, I know. Uh, here's what I Here's what I wonder. Um, every part of that fascinated me, but the part that fascinated me the most, the guy who told you in Florida that you would never <laughs> make it, is that the same guy that recommended that we not buy Apple or Amazon stock mm. or not start Michael Jordan on the high school <laughs> basketball team? Well, listen, you do remember Michael Jordan had some no's in his life. I'm no Michael Jordan of broadcasting or basketball or anything else, but... From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I do think it's good. I always tell that stories to, to our interns or when I speak at colleges or high schools because I want people to know you know, listen, not everybody is going to get you. Um, not everybody's going to see your potential. You're going to get a lot of no's. You'll get many more no's than you'll get yeses, but it's okay. If you have a passion for me as a person of faith, if you believe God is directing you to something, hang in there. There is purpose in getting knocked down. There's purpose in being humbled. There's purpose in feeling like you're treading water. Like you're learning from all of those things and it will only make you more sure about your dream and what you're trying to pursue. All you need is that one person at each stage to say, yes, I'm going to take a chance on you. I see something and it's okay to get fired. It's okay. I'm Trey Gowdy and we'll have more coming up. All right, Shan, when my wife listens to this, she's going to say that was so beautiful. That is such a Christ-like attitude. And what I'm thinking is, I hope you send a Christmas card to that guy in Florida <laughs> every year uh, to remind him of how bad his judgment was. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's just proof that it's a subjective business. People will see you differently. And something that's a perfect fit somewhere is not a great fit somewhere else. And you got to find your place and you got to keep fighting. I have so many friends along the way who say who left the business because they got tired of fighting to you know be recognized or to make it to that next promotion or make it to that next market. And they say to me now, like, gosh, I wish I wouldn't have given up. And I think half of success in life in no matter what you do as a mom or an astronaut or a lawyer or a teacher, whatever it is, is just not giving up in the face of setbacks and adversity and people telling you, no, it's going to happen no matter who you are, no matter how talented or not talented you think you are, um, you're going to get no. And so I think outlasting people is actually half the battle. That is great advice. I hope young people take that to heart. All right. I'm going to switch gears with you a little bit. What is one part of your job, your current job that people who don't do that job would be surprised at or would not understand? You know, I do a ton, a ton, a ton of reading. 
all day, every day. I send out a big note to my team during the day. And it's so funny because I remember one of Sheldon's um, aunts who are lovely, wonderful people. They were like, well, so does she go in at like 10 o'clock at night? Like she just, you know, go in and read the show, you know? So I think sometimes people think that's what we do. Like that is definitely part of the job going in there and interacting with guests and interviews and doing the on-air part. I don't think people realize how much um, that we prepare. I write a lot of the scripts. I have an amazing team that writes a lot of the scripts, but I do a ton of the research myself. I love to read and research. That's one of those skills from being an attorney that definitely transferred into this. But I don't think people realize I start that before lunch. I'm, I'm reading papers and websites from all across the spectrum. I think you need to know what's going on. Um, and getting that first editorial note out to my team, I try to do that you know, by one or two o'clock, the latest. And we're off to the races. So it's an all-consuming job. And I don't, hopefully most people don't think I just show up and read the prompter an hour before the show, but I can understand if you don't know the business, you might think that. Um, I could see if they watch me, they might think I just show <laughs> up and sit down and watch the prompter, but not watching you. No, hmm. it, I, I cannot. I could not. I cannot let something come out of my mouth that I either have not written or edited. Mm -hmm. I just I've got trust issues. I don't. Well, no one wants to be Ron Burgundy. You know what I mean? You can't just read what's in the prompter because that will get you in serious trouble. And listen, I think we both know people probably who are so good who can just go off the cuff and just kind of wing it. And when we have breaking news, that's what we do. You know, we may throw up a live shot of a fire or of an accident, of an avalanche, whatever it is. You have to tap dance some. But for things that are within your control, I do think, um, you know, prepping and editing and reading um, certainly makes a lot of sense. Not everybody can be like a Tony Snow and just go in and wing you know, Fox News Sunday, every Sunday morning. Um, Most of us need a lot more prep. Yeah. Chance favors the prepared mind. That's what I've always told my kids. You can't help how smart you are, how cute you are, but you can't help how prepared you are. Exactly. And that is excellent advice. Um, All right. Someone you have not interviewed, but wish you had. Mm. You know what? I tried many times to strike up a conversation in a relationship with Justice Ginsburg and she wasn't having it. Um, (laughs) I tried, you know, we'd have the events over at the corridor parties or you would see her at something out and about. Um, And I really tried to get her to warm up to me. And I think she was just I'm not sure that it was just me. I think she was just a very um, circumspect kind of um, protective person. Uh, of her privacy and of her space, the complete opposite of, you know, Justice Scalia, who they were such great friends, but he's like bouncing off the walls and singing Christmas carols and will answer all your questions on or off the record. Um, You know, sometimes I wish I'd made more of an effort before she was gone to kind of probe her mind and how she came to decisions on the court. Um, And she has some really interesting controversial opinions that I think some of her biggest fans don't like to highlight. Um, But I think to delve into her a little bit more, that would have been an honor. Yeah, it is fascinating. My my daughter just finished law school. She's a big fan of uh, Justice Ginsburg. And then and then, you know, like you said, there are some opinions out there that don't get a lot of attention that mm-hmm. uh, maybe take a little bit of the shine off. They don't for me because these are complicated issues. Of course. And, yeah. And, you know, the result, <laughs> the result, and the analysis are two different things. All right. Before I get to the court, one other thing, just because I'm kind of diabolical, other than Lindsey Graham. <laughs> Anybody you've interviewed, but you wish you had not. Ooh, um, hmm. 
you know, some people are tougher than others. Uh, I, you know, I joke all the time about um, a, a difficult interview that I had. I was filling in for Greta Van Susteren. It was the first time that Fox had me filling in on their primetime lineup. I think she was 10 o'clock then. And, um, you know, the weird thing had happened, if you remember the Salahis who broke into, I don't want to say broke into, but they got into this White House event. They got past Secret Service. Um, They got very close to then Vice President Biden. There were pictures with them and everybody. And it it kind of blew up. It was this um, weird thing that, you know, the pictures were out there. And it was that night that I was filling in for uh, for Greta. And um so we had booked Dennis Kucinich and Rick Santorum in our A block. And it was about um, military operations in Afghanistan, the U.S. involvement, that kind of stuff. Very serious. We're all prepped for that. So we get we I sit down in the chair and they said, like, hey, we got the pictures from this these couple at the White House and um, it's breaking news. So we want to you know try to make something of that and let's do this. So in the A block, we start, which is the first block of the show, I start interviewing them. And I'm like, guys, before we get to Afghanistan, I got to ask you about this breaking news. Like this couple got past Secret Service and got up to the vice president. What if they were nefarious, whatever we don't think they were. But I mean, what kind of um, incursion is that into White House uh, security and protocol? And (laughs) Dennis Kucinich is like, "Um, I did not come here to talk about that. I came here to talk about Afghanistan. I don't care about these people. No one got hurt at the White House. It's not a big deal. And uh, so I'm like, Rick Santorum, in my mind, I'm thinking, please save me because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm new at this. I go to uh, Rick Santorum, Senator Santorum, what do you think about this? These people breach security, whatever. And he goes, you know what? This is a rare time. I'm going to have to agree with Dennis Kucinich on something. And I also think this is being overblown. It's not a big deal. And I do agree. It's more important that we talk about Afghanistan. And the producers are in here like, no, we need to get some kind of comment from them. And I can tell they're not having it. And they're like, uh, in my ear, eight minutes. So eight minutes to go now I have this block with these two lawmakers who want nothing to do with this topic that I'm trying to talk to them about. I'm so amateur at this. I try again with, you know, um, Congressman Kucinich, like, well, wouldn't you be worried if somebody got to, you know, the president or whatever? And he's like, young lady, I'm going to tell you one more time. If we don't stop talking about this and start talking about Afghanistan, I will leave this show. I will take this microphone off. This is not what I was booked to talk about. And they're in my ear like seven minutes. I'm like, I'm dying. It was the worst, longest seven minutes of my life trying to get these two to talk about this story they did not want to talk about. So I have much more experience now, but that was pretty painful at the time. Oh, I am. I am laughing. Can you feel it like just icky how awful it was? I can because I would be taking the little ear thing out of my ear saying, okay, I'm not listening to the producers anymore. Uh, (laughs) this This is a train wreck. The no. thing that makes me laugh, I don't, I know Rick a little bit. I, I, I know Rick a little bit. I actually know Dennis much better. He's a nice guy. He, they both that are. Is I mean, so out of character for him. He was fired up about Afghanistan, though. That is, that was a big moment. And that's what he wanted to talk about. So I think he just thought we were doing something that was so silly compared to Afghanistan. And he just was not having it. Well, I, uh, we've laughed about it since then. Okay, good. Because I yeah. y'all are both such nice people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just I I could see Dennis, you know, helping you out for a minute or two just because you know what well, he has a daughter actually that's in 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 journalism. Right. Exactly. So, this was um, many moons ago. All right, I want to ask you about the Supreme Court decision on the vaccine mandates, and I'm I'm not gonna like lead. I'm not gonna ask any leading questions. I want you as if you were explaining to a group of non lawyers to tell them. What did and did not happen? 
Sure. So we had two federal vaccine mandates that were before the court. The first one, OSHA, that would have been about 84 million employees who would have been impacted by this federal regulation, an emergency regulation. It didn't go through the normal vetting process that essentially said, employers, if you've got 100 or more workers, you've got to force everyone to get the vaccine or you can test and mask the unvaccinated. And there was a big dispute about, well, who's going to pay for the testing? Had to happen at least once a week. And that was part of the problem, too. So in that case, six to three, the court with the three liberals, Justices Breyer, Kagan and Sotomayor in dissent decided the federal government does not have that amount of overreach, that amount of power. The executive branch cannot, um, you know, basically conscript private businesses into doing something it had many, many times said it could not do publicly. It wasn't the role of the federal government. And it wasn't just about you know, workplace safety, because as you know, a number of the justices noted and was part of the majority opinion, you know, Omicron or COVID is not just something that shows up when you're in the workplace. This is a 24 hour day situation that people have to deal with. It permeates all parts of life. It's not just the workplace and the government they felt in that case, just overextended what the federal government has the power to do. The second case is a so-called healthcare worker mandate. So if you're any facility that accepts Medicare or Medicaid funding, which as we've talked about, is just about any clinic, doctor's office, hospital, uh, you know, long-term care facility, nursing facility, you're going to be impacted by this. It requires that anybody who works, volunteers, or is a contractor there, and you get this money, the rule is you got to vaccinate those workers, employees, volunteers, contractors, whoever they are. Um, and th- we had two of the justices considered to be, you know, they're Republican appointees, if you want to call them conservative, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh went with the three liberal justices to say, hey, this is within the secretary's power, the secretary of health and human services to dictate this because these uh, these entities and facilities that get the federal money, it always comes with strings attached. We can hold you to certain staffing levels, um, resource levels, cleanliness levels. The federal money isn't free. It comes with strings. And so the secretary has decided here the string is it's going to help protect your facilities if these workers get vaccinated. And five of the justices were convinced that was a correct use of his power. And that mandate stands. I'm going to sound, Shannon, like an apologist for you know Roberts and Kavanaugh, although any other given opinion, it could be Gorsuch. It could, I, and I don't mean to be an apologist for them, but there's a difference between saying someone has the power to do something, even if I would not do it myself. I mean, I don't, I don't I'm not, I'm not convinced Kavanaugh or Roberts think mandatory vaccination is a good idea, but they're not legislators mm-hmm. and they're not administrators. So, I mean, isn't it? I mean, I read some terrible things about Kavanaugh in the last week, like, you know, like because of one opinion that he sided with the majority or maybe even authored that somehow or another, he's a huge disappointment for all of time to come. Mm-hmm. That just seems like kind of a harsh reaction My guess is Brett Kavanaugh, probably if he were a legislator, wouldn't vote for Mm -hmm. mandatory vaccination, but he's not. Yeah. And that's the thing that is hard for people to understand sometimes, but we don't want our courts legislating. They know that's not their role. And in in both these cases, and especially in the OSHA case, they talked about the role of Congress or the states to be the ones who get involved with these uh, vaccine mandates, that it's not the purview of the federal government to do that. Um, But as we look at that, you know, HHS regulation that came out or the dictate from the secretary, they found, listen, if you don't like it, you can, you know, go to Capitol Hill and fight about it. But we believe those five justices believe that the secretary is within the powers that have been granted to him 
to make this decision. And I think you're right. I'm not saying that those five justices all would do that in their personal capacity or if they were voting as a legislator, but they thought the way things are crafted now, that was the right decision. Well, you described yourself as a nerd. Um, The only time I feel nerdy is when I am actually listening to oral argument um, Mm -hmm. at the Supreme Court, which I did um, last week, whatever week it was, uh, those cases were argued. It even sounded to me like Justice Alito said Congress could do this or Congress could send a clearer signal that they intended for it to be done. So it's not a question of whether mandatory vaccinations are per se unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. It's really a question of what can be done by whom and to whom, isn't isn't it? That's Mm -hmm. the way I see it. Exactly. Exactly. Because I I think it would be a much difficult, much more difficult challenge if, say, uh, say New York says everybody in the state has to get vaccinated and that works its way up to the Supreme Court. I do think that'd be a much tougher case for the opponents of the mandate, um, because these justices said repeatedly in the arguments, this was something that should be closer to the states or to Congress. So I think you're right. I think. When I when the OSHA mandate was proposed last November, first of all, we were in a different scenario than we didn't have Omicron where almost everybody, you know, has it or is probably going to get it. Um, And the and the, you know, big federal, quote unquote, experts or authorities were acknowledging that Dr. Fauci, Dr. Walensky, Dr. Woodcock over at the FDA. I mean, they're acknowledging that now because it's a different scenario. So there was some question about whether because the facts have changed, it would lead to a different result on either of these um, vaccine mandates. Um, But it was clear listening to the arguments that a number of the justices weren't up to date on the facts as we have them now anyway. So um, you worry because you don't want any misinformation to be a part of what these nine justices are deciding. We have great respect for them and their intellect, but we want them also to be um, in command of the factual information as it is on the ground at the time they're making a decision. Yeah, and they don't do themselves any favors. I mean, I listened to the oral argument in the Texas abortion law case. And some of those questions were very uh, political in nature. Um, One even kind of took a swipe at religion. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you don't want to be held to a political standard, they probably should ask questions that are not inherently political. Speaking of, say New York passes statewide mandate. I think some people think states do have the power under the general welfare clause in that Mm -hmm. particular state's constitution. They could do it. But then you'd have a bunch of litigation over over religious exceptions. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I guess I could test my theory. I'm thinking about starting a religion where I go to church on Monday morning because Sunday I usually like to play golf. So (laughs) I, I guess I mean, can I like start a religion that says the only thing I really believe is that needles should not be stuck in my arm? Or is it a little more comp when when you're evaluating, you know, violations of people's religious mm-hmm. beliefs, I guess it has to be a religion that's existed for a little while. Well, you know, you think about the jokes about the cases of the, you know, flying spaghetti monster church. I mean, what, where could you draw the line? Um, and I think, um, you know, our, I think our court generally is going to want to give a wide berth to the First Amendment and freedom of religion, freedom of the exercise of religion. Um, and I think the plaintiffs in those cases would be very careful to back ones they think are strong, um, challenges. I think somebody who's got a deep-seated faith or pro-life 
you know, concern about uh, the use of testing of fetal lines and fetal tissue for the testing of the vaccines, I think you'd want to get somebody who, um, if you're looking for a good plaintiff to that case, I think you'd want to get somebody who is um, deeply invested uh, in their Catholic faith or pro- Protestant faith or somewhere where there is a strong pro-life tradition. Um, you don't, if you're if you're going to oppose these vaccines on um, of religious grounds, you do not want the plaintiff who shows up with Monday morning um Golf church or whatever we're going to name your your denomination. Oh, I'm so thankful my wife doesn't listen to this. I'm Trey Gowdy, and we'll have more coming up. All right, you mentioned you mentioned devout Catholics. Um, I will. Do you ever read a columnist named Maureen Dowd? Oh, I do. I read her uh, piece this weekend in the New York Times. All right. I, I try very hard not to, but every now and again, an ill-intentioned friend will send me something. If you read it, then you may recall this line. Um, I'll read it to you. We can't give up on the president because he's all that stands between us and the apocalypse at the hands of Trump, DeSantis, Pence, Christy Nome, and future Chief Justice Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, it doesn't, you know, Shannon, it doesn't really matter i don't think to anyone you know what their politics are amy coney barrett and donald trump to me the times i've been around them have literally nothing in common Mm -hmm. literally nothing in common so it's a i don't it just struck me as being so manifestly unfair to compare amy coney barrett to the apocalypse yeah, it does seem like a bit much. And I love how they throw in Christy Nome's name and others that they they're all about powerful women until these women turn out to be conservative and don't um, believe the same way that they do. And I think that that from one woman to another, I find that discouraging. Like, shouldn't we be cheering for the successes of women? How cool will it be when we have a female chief justice one day? I, I'm going to think that's cool. Um, we should want our young women to think that's cool and, and to aspire to that. So I do think this whole, um, the world as we know it will end if Amy Coney Barrett ever becomes the chief justice. Um, it struck me as a little bit hysterical um, when I read that column because I thought, wow, um, we have bigger problems than worrying about some hypothetical with Amy Coney Barrett um, and, and her you know, whether she would ascend to that level on the court. I think um, there's so much internally that is ripping at the fabric of this country, of our communities, of our care for each other, that um, we have some nasty enemies on the outside who love to see the infighting and love to see us going after each other because it takes our focus off of them and some of the bigger problems. So um, the the column struck me as a little bit histrionic. Yeah. And then, I mean, and again, it, it doesn't, you know, people's politics are their are their own business. But when I look at that list of names I, in her version of, of her version of eschatology, I see a former president, whether you like him or not. He was elected president by the Electoral College. I see a former vice president. I see three former governors and a highly trained lawyer that has succeeded at every level. And, and the word for that is the apocalypse. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm more worried about the Kardashians taking over America than I am Amy Coney Barrett. Okay. Um, I think, listen, if we have people who are, I think, regardless of what side of the aisle that they're on, they love this country and they want the best for her. 
I'm going to be cheering for those people to find common ground. I know you're all about this too, um, where we can better things for everyone in this country, um, give opportunity, make sure that it's there. This is the land of opportunity. This is a country like no other. I mean, especially as a woman, I stop and think on a pretty regular basis, like, thank you, God, that I was born into this country versus somewhere where I would literally have zero decisions to make about my life. I would not get an education. I would be viewed as a piece of property and I would have no voice in my life. I I sometimes feel guilty to have been born in a country like this where people can have opinions all over the map. No one's throwing them in jail for that yet. Um, You know, you can have a position that is in disagreement with someone else. As long as you're not advocating harm and violence, um, you can have whatever theory that you want to have and share it. And if there are cuckoo people who want to follow you in this country, they can do that as as long as you're not harming them or other people or advocating for that. Um, And that leaves a lot of room of things to be discussed and debated. And I think it's a beautiful thing that we can do this in this country. And if we don't have friends or acquaintances or people in our life that hold you know, very different positions and views than we do, um, then how much of an echo chamber are we living in? And when we want to shut down people who don't agree with us or see the world um, or politics the same that way that we do, um, we cut off the chance to understand each other and to find the common ground that we so desperately need as Americans. Well, beautifully said. Um, we'll make one more point on this and then we're going to close with some happy things. Um, I have both tried to do it and now talk and write about it. I can tell you that talking and writing about it is much, much easier. Every Mm -hmm. name on her list face the voters, whether you like them or not, they face the voters. Um, a couple of them at really, really high levels. Uh, you know, Pence uh, obviously sat behind me on the Judiciary Committee. I'm biased towards him. I think he's one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. And then he ran for governor. Ronnie was on two committees with me in Congress, and now he's the governor of Florida. Christie and I came in together. Now she's the governor of South Dakota. Amy Coney Barrett, you know, at least she sat you know, for a pretty grueling confirmation process. I, I can tell you that sitting behind a computer and writing about it is a lot of easier than actually doing it. And the notion that we've somehow uh, elevated uh, opinion writers up to the same level of the people who are actually in the arena trying to do it. Um, And that's true on the left and the right. I can tell you, having talked about it and done it, talking about it is much, much Mm -hmm. easier. But we're going to end on a happy note. You only get to listen to one song for the rest of your life. What song is it? Oh, that is a, that's probably the toughest question I've ever been asked because I love music so, 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 so much. Um, what is something that I put on um, repeat a lot? For me, it's probably going to be a worship song, um, a Christian song. Um, there's, there's a song I've been listening to a lot lately, and sometimes I'll just put it on repeat, and it's about God's goodness is running after me. Um, and it doesn't matter what happens. Like he's running after me, his goodness. He wants to bless me. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I can never do anything. Um, I was just reading this morning in John six, where it talked about Christ said, I will never cast you away from me once you've come to me. And I think about that, like God's goodness is running after me and how comforting. Um, I don't think if I had to listen to one message for the rest of my life, um, it'd be that, but if I'm going to pick a secular song, it's going to be photographed by Def Leppard and you can just, you can put those two together. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) I 
I would have never put those two in the same. You like, wouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't, but that's no. truly my favorite. My favorite secular song of all time is probably photographed by Def Leppard. Um, well, my <laughs> wife, all, all Terry listens to is contemporary Christian music. And all I think Mary Langston listens to is that. So I've been trying to listen to some of it. And mm-hmm. there, there's a song called The Blessing, I think, with oh, Carrie so Joe. Good. Yes. I think, I mean, the word children appears in it a lot and the word amen appears in it a lot. So it would not be hard for me to learn the words, I don't think, but it uh, does. It's a good one. It's a good one. And then there's a group called Shane and Shane um, Mm -hmm. that uh, has a song about the 23rd Psalm, um, Mm -hmm. which is also good. But I would pick a one by U2, um, which to me is the best song ever written. I don't know if you're a U2 fan or not, but um, the song one is to me the best that's the one I would Yes, as, a, as an 80s teenager and 90s. Um, yes, you two, immensely talented. Got to see them in concert a couple years ago. And they're incredibly talented. It's crazy. Off the charts. Favorite female character in the Bible. And I'm asking you because you're an expert on this. Mm, you know, that's that can change day to day. But I really love Deborah from the Old Testament because she was the only female leader of the entire nation of Israel. And she was a judge. So I love that. She's got the judicial thing. People came to her to settle their disputes. And um, they were being very oppressed when we see Deborah, when she shows up in the Bible. And the Canaanites were like, my, my friend Penny Nance over at Concerned Women for America describes them as the ISIS of their day. Like, these were bad people, child sacrifice, killing people, doing. And, and the highways and byways of Israel were so dangerous, they didn't even use them. So Deborah is now, you know, they've, they've fallen away from God, as Israel often does, as we all do. But he's always waiting for us to come back. And so um, the people desperately wanted him to save them again. So Deborah is told by God, you're to go into battle against the Canaanites. And it was ridiculous on paper. It, it was not a good match at all. It would be, you know, St. Mary's College of the Blind, my dad would say, playing like Bama right now. It just was ridiculous. And Deborah went to the general, the top general of the of the country or, or of the of Israel and said, hey, we're going to go into battle against the Canaanites. And he said, uh, no, I'm not going to do it unless you go with me. And if you don't go with me, I'm not going to do it. And women did not lead military battles in those days. And she said, okay, I'm going to do that. But because of that, you're not going to get the glory for this thing. And Deborah said she never questioned. I mean, she just believed what God had told her. They were going to do it and be victorious. And something that made no sense on paper came true because of her faith and following through with that. And the Israelites had a resounding victory. So, you know, when I feel like I need a little courage and a little bit um, more discipline in listening and trusting God, I think of Deborah. Did you grow up? Did, did you attend a Baptist church growing up or was it another denomination? I did. As a kid, I did. Mm-hmm. I did, too. And, you know, I, I'm so glad that you wrote a book on female characters in the Bible. It just I never to this day, I have not understood. Women were the first to acknowledge the deity of Christ. They mm-hmm. were the first to believe in his ministry. They were the last to leave the cross, the first to show up at the empty tomb. And I never understood why they couldn't like speak 
in church when I was growing <laughs> up, but, uh, but I, that well, just it, a mystery for me. It was such a privilege to write the book because I grew up knowing about all these women, but I just learned so much more. And it reminded me how much Jesus was like such a rule breaker because he went to these women and hung out with them and they were part of his group. And that was just not cool back then. You know, I mean, he went to prostitutes and the woman at the well and the woman caught in adultery, like most of the religious leaders would not get within a hundred feet of that. Like it was just sinful and unclean. And he went to people where they were and he included women in his ministry. So I like to remind people of that. Like, you know, he never saw women as second-class citizens ever. He did not. He crossed about every barrier you can possibly cross. Yep. Uh, What's your favorite verse in the Bible? Hmm, Probably Psalm 34, four. I sought the Lord cried out to him. He heard my fears and delivered me from them. Uh, And I found that at a a real crisis moment in my life. And it was one of those times where they say, like, you're not supposed to just open the Bible and find a verse like, but I prayed, God, I need something right now. And that's Psalm 34 is the chapter I came to. And I will never forget that verse because he hears us. He hears our cries, whatever it is going on. He hears it. If they offered you the presidency of Liberty University, would you take it? Oh, 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 that's very out of left field. Um, I will say this. I don't feel like I'm equipped or the right person for that job, um, but I pray every day for whoever their next president is going to be. I literally do pray that they would be um, wise like a serpent, gentle like a dove. I can't imagine a much tougher gig out there. Um, And I know God's got the right person for that. And I will support whoever that person is. I'll do whatever the school needs for me. Um, I don't think that's probably the best way I could serve them. Um, But uh, I guess you never say never. I think you'd be great. Um, Funniest movie you've ever seen. Um, hmm. I'm a big fan of Napoleon Dynamite. (laughs) (laughs) and i like nacho libre also those are two of my faves um there's something about napoleon dynamite the first time i saw it i was like this film is ridiculous and then i just grew on me and i've watched it over and over and over again and i just there's something so quirky and weird and hilarious about it um i also think bridesmaids is hilarious if i'm flipping by and that's on i'm watching that um so many great inappropriate things in that movie i probably should not say that but it does make me laugh I the, the, the I, I don't ever get nervous speaking in public. I I get I'm more nervous right now than I would be speaking in public. <laughs> but I was asked to speak at my son's sixth grade graduation. That's pressure. Um, and my wife was present, and that and that's an exacting an exacting audience. So mm-hmm. I actually gave the speech on the movie Napoleon Dynamite. <gasps> you did not. I did. Um, Isn't it a great movie? You know what I mean. Making a fool out of yourself for a friend. <laughs> um, I, I just that, that's, that's what I remember about it is is do, making yourself uncomfortable to help a friend. Mm-hmm. That that was the message. There there are a lot of less charitable messages in that <laughs> movie, but vote for Pedro. Uh, have you ever seen the movie Fletch? Oh yes, that's an excellent movie too. Uh, I, that, I believe that. Sheldon could can quote most of that. Well. Along with Caddyshack. <laughs> we'll get Sheldon and John Ratcliffe and I together. And the Uh-oh. three of us will have There'll be no recording line in that movie. All right. <laughs> be last, no recording. Question. last question. Fox News colleague that you could hurt if you could leave that you would hurt if you could legally get away with it. Ooh. And I, mine is Jason Chaffetz. And I just want to know whether or not that's yours, too. Oh, no, it won't be Jason. He's too nice. Somebody would actually have to harm 
if I could get away with it, you know, I love all of them. Maybe I should say Greg Gleifeld. He does call me evil all the time. So that would make you are evil. So maybe that's the guy. I don't know, but I would not actually hurt him. He's too precious. He he needs a new definition of evil. If he thinks you are (laughs) evil. Well, I hate to make everyone listening mad, but I can tell you she's even nicer in person than she appears on television. And I hope that you have learned something about Shannon and how she got to where she is and more importantly about her character. Thank you. My best to Sheldon. I hope that uh, he watches the game every I'm depressed because Dallas lost, but uh, mm. his Steelers lost too. So They did, but that's not going to stop him from watching sports. I <laughs> both will, know that. <laughs> it will not stop me either. So can't wait to see you both in person. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you all for listening. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.